Good morning again. Would you bow with me once more and let's prepare our hearts to hear what God has for us from his word. Would you bow with me? Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has everything we need for salvation and for life. Uh, We pray, Lord, that as we open our minds and our hearts to receive from your word this morning, I pray that you would encourage and challenge us, Lord, on what you ask for each of us as your disciples, as those who bear your name and follow you. I pray that you would speak through me. May these words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, I am going to begin with a scientific question regarding the difference between a laser and a spotlight. Now, I'm no science teacher, so I'm sure there's some of you out there more knowledgeable than me on this, but I was doing some reading this week and I found this quite interesting. And so behind, behind me here, you see a picture of a laser. I have a laser pointer here. It's got a green, green laser. It's the green on the light spectrum, which we're going to get into in just a second. But my question for you is, why is it that a medium-powered laser, like the one behind me, can cut through solid steel in a matter of seconds, but that even the world's most powerful spotlight could only make that same steel slightly warm? Right? So you have a powerful spotlight shining on this steel, and the best it can do is make it warm, and yet you take a laser... A medium-powered laser, it's not even the most powerful one, and it can cut through in a matter of seconds. Why is that? Why is it that a laser can cut using the beam of light, and a spotlight can't cut using a beam of light? Well, the answer is it's all a matter of unity and focus. Unity and focus. Now I'm going to try to explain. Laser is, of course, an acronym. I will, I will give... Uh, brownie points, bragging rights, to anyone who can tell me right now what the acronym LASER stands for. Does anyone know what it stands for? No one's jumping up. Okay, I'll tell you. I have it written down. I have the, I have the Coles notes here. So LASER is an acronym for L, light, A, amplification, S, stimulated, E, emission of R, radiation. So light, amplification, stimulated, emission, of radiation, laser. Now you know why we use laser instead of all of those words, right? It's a mouthful. So we take it for granted, right? We, we see lasers all the time. We use laser pointers. Lasers are in all sorts of technology that we use today. Now, what many of us, myself included, don't know quite as readily is that a laser is created when the electrons inside an atom inside special glasses absorb energy from an electrical current and become excited. Now that's all a mouthful, I'm not even going to bother explaining. But these electrons become excited and they pick up speed as they, as they move about in their orbit around uh, the atom at their core. And so when they become excited, they eventually have to return back to a slower state or they essentially, uh, in a sense, almost die And as they die, as they come back to a slower state, these excited electrons emit photons. Now, as these photons are emitted, these are, in fact, the particles of light that we see with our eyes. So, in fact, it's a fair statement to say the only thing you have ever seen in your life is a photon. What you are seeing right now are photons being reflected back into your eyes that your brain is interpreting as the images uh, that we see. So... 
photons are the particles of light that we see with our physical eyes. And so in the laser, as these newly released photons are shooting forward, they come in contact with other atoms. And this repeats the process, prompting them to release their photons as well. And so literally, in a nanosecond of time that it takes to, to see that laser as I'm shooting out, in just a nanosecond of time, as few as three photons multiply into a huge army of photons, all shooting forward at the speed of light, which in a vacuum is 186,282 feet per second. So that's a lot happening in a nanosecond, right? We're, we're going from as, as few as three photons to a, a huge amount of photons. Now, I probably got some of these details a little bit wrong. I see Matt could probably um, explain it a bit better, but I think I'm in the ballpark, at least from what I researched this week. You can correct me after if I've made some huge mistakes. Nonetheless, these photons in a laser are all working together, and they're unified. So this is the, the next thing I want to show you here, if this is going to advance to the next slide. I'm going to try one more time. If not, could you advance to the next slide for me, please? And uh, here we see a, a computer simulation of these photons in a laser working together. You can see that they're all in lockstep with each other. Like a marching army, they are moving forward in perfect unison. And so the wavelength of every single photon, as it shoots forward, its crest and its trough in the wavelength are in perfect unison with each other. And so a laser, all of the photons, are playing follow the leader, shooting forward with a singular focal point. So here you see a singular focal point. They're all shooting together perfectly in unison with each other. And so within a laser, it is that intense unity and singular focus that gives it its awesome power. Even when focused correctly and with enough energy behind it, the ability to cut through solid steel with simply nothing more than particles of light. Now, what about a spotlight? Well, if you go to the next slide, here you'll see a picture of a spotlight. We all have them. They're, they're up on the stage here right now. I'm thankful that though they throw light and heat, they're not cutting me at the moment. And so these spotlights, however, are doing the same thing as a laser in one sense. They are, they are shooting out or, or, or um, yeah, releasing photons. And so why can't these spotlights cut through steel? Well, the problem with a spotlight is that unlike the laser, the spotlight's photons are not unified. And then in the next picture here, you'll see this is a simulation of what the photons from a spotlight are doing. They are simply shooting off in random directions. And as a result, most of their energy is wasted. There is no singular focal point. They are just kind of all just kind of shotgun effect shooting outward. And so the vast difference in power between a laser and a spotlight is all a matter of unity and focus. Now, as is often the case, we see that God has created the, the uh, natural world around us that quite often scientific principles will closely mirror spiritual principles as well. And so here, the parallel is as it regards the unity and focus of the body of Christ, the church. When, like the spotlight, each member of the body of Christ just does their own thing, shooting off in random directions, and there's no one focusing on a singular mission, working together in unity, 
then most of its energy is wasted and very little is accomplished. However, if in like this picture here of the laser, if you move to the next photo, here we see a, a simulation of a laser and the photons shooting forward in unity with each other, all pointing in one singular focused direction, then even a relatively small church can become powerful and can accomplish great things for the Lord. In our Lord Jesus' prayer for us in Gethsemane in John 17, 23, he prayed this about all future believers. He said, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so now I want you to just imagine for a moment what might happen, what might be accomplished if we, the church, were in complete unity and laser-like focus on the mission that Jesus has given to us. What might be accomplished if we work together and were powered in that way? And so now, with this aim in mind, I want us to uh, begin this series that we're starting this morning with that aim to help us refocus our spiritual vision as the church, to refocus our spiritual vision on Jesus' mission for us. And so in this four-part series, I've entitled it Keeping the Mission in Focus. And each week, we are going to look at one of these four mission statements that we have hanging on our church wall. They, they hang there every week subconsciously. You probably read them every week. And yet consciously, we maybe don't focus on them all that often. And so over the course of this series, I want us to deliberately focus on these four statements and remind all of us as a church why we have them hanging on our wall, why we have them there as a continual reminder for us that we can focus on together to keep us unified in our spirit, in our mission, and in our purpose. And so this morning, we're going to begin with serving with our hands. Now, in our next slide, you see here another picture of that, in case you can't see it on the wall. Serving with our hands. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, our Lord Jesus said of himself, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. As our teacher and as our Lord, Jesus constantly demonstrated for us what a hands-on approach to serving looks like. One of the best examples of this is when he willingly took on the role of the lowliest slave in his culture of that day, which was the slave in the household who would be responsible to wash the feet of those who would come in and dine at their master's table. And so this would be the sort of the lowest position on the pecking order. It would be those who would come in, because remember in that day they wore sandals, their feet would have been dirty from the dust of the road, the manure of, of, of cattle, sheep, camels, you name it, they're walking in it. And so the job of the servant, the slave who would wash the feet, was the lowest thing that you could possibly do. And so here is Jesus setting the example for us. And I'll refer you there briefly in John chapter 13. And if you want to follow along, I'll read for you verses 12 to 17. The setting, of course, is the Last Supper. Verse 12 tells us, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. 
You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so here Jesus does the action and then very deliberately and intentionally tells them, I have set an example for you. Do likewise. Do as I have done for you. And so too that call is to all of us to serve with our hands, as Jesus very literally served his disciples with his hands, taking their their stinky, smelly, dirty feet in his own hands and washing them in complete humility. And Jesus also gets to, beyond the menial task, the physical aspect of washing someone's dirty feet with his own hands, he gets to the, the core part of the shame and the fact that to the disciples and Peter's reaction, this is beneath their Lord's dignity. Remember, this is the lowest position a slave could possibly take, is to wash the feet. And here Jesus is willingly doing it. It's beneath his dignity, and Peter refuses. Lord, I should be washing your feet. And of course, Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And of course, there's a whole offshoot there. But the, the focal point of this is that Jesus is saying, if I, your Lord and Master, am stooping willingly to the lowest position, who are you to say it's beneath your dignity? Who are you as my follower to say, well, I can't do that. That's too lowly for me. When he says, if I, your Lord and master, have done it, no servant is greater than his master, is he? And so what Jesus is really getting at is a, is a, is a hard truth and a dig at any one of us who would say that anything is beneath our dignity. To stoop low to serve someone else and say, that, that's, no, I couldn't do that. That's beneath my dignity. What we are, in fact, saying is, well, we are ahead of Christ. We are ahead of our master. Because if we're not willing to do something, Jesus said, hey, it wasn't beneath me. Shouldn't be beneath you either. No matter how humble, no matter how low, Jesus set the example for us. Do as I have done for you. And so now we move on to our scripture passage that Bert read for us earlier from Matthew chapter 25. I invite you to flip there with me this morning. And in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, we read... That on the judgment day, the, the Son of Man, we, we look forward to this day, but we got to remember, when Jesus returns, it's not just, you know, uh, game over and we're in heaven with him forever instantly. There's going to be some things that happen first, and one of those things that's going to happen first is the great throne judgment. He says he's going to sit upon his throne, and he's going to shep- separate the people as sheep from the goats. And in verse 34, he's going to say to his children, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then in verse 40 he explains, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine... You did for me. Now, I want you for just a second to take a look at your hands. Most of you have two of them. 
I don't think there's anyone here this morning missing any hands. So just, just hold up your hands. Take a look at them. These are your hands. They don't belong to anyone else. They're yours. And I want you to just look at them and ask yourself the question, what have I done with these hands? What have I done with these hands? What have I done with them in my life? When you actually start listing it, it's a long list. Perhaps some of you have done things like this. You've shoveled grain, shoveled snow, shoveled food into your mouth. You've done all those things with your hands. You've steered a truck, steered a bike, steered a can of Coke into your mouth. You've thrown a baseball. Some of you have thrown a golf club. I have. Thrown a fist in anger. How about you've changed a diaper, changed the channel, changed a tire, given a handshake, given a pat on the back, given a high five? How about wiped a dish, wiped a spill, wiped a tear from your eye? The list is virtually endless because when you start thinking about the things that we do with our hands, it doesn't end because we literally live our life by these hands. Every task, big or small, in some way, our hands are incorporated. Even writing this sermon, as I was, as I was typing it out on my computer, the irony was not lost to me that I was using my hands. Our hands are truly a marvelous design when you really stop and consider these five digits. They change our lives. And we don't even think about it, but if you were to talk to someone who has lost these hands, they will tell you how instrumental these hands are to literally every aspect of life. They are marvelous by design. The great philosopher Aristotle called the hand the instrument of all instruments. And he went on to credit the hand as the body part which, along with the brain, separates humans from beasts. Aristotle recognized that the two, working together, hand and brain, they go together as as agent and intention. So the agent is the hand and the intention comes from our mind, our brain. What is done and what is meant to be done, the two have to work together. The brain thinks of what is to be done, and then the hand does it without us even thinking further. Even this morning as I preach, I don't think about my hands moving. They just do it all on their own. My brain is, of course, controlling these hands, but the hands are just doing what the brain tells them to do without further thought. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for hand, yad, Y-A-D, the Hebrew word, translates in two ways equally. Yad translates as hand, and Yad translates as power. Hand and power. Now, why is that? Well, in the Hebrew thinking, without the hand, there is no power. Power stems from the hand, the power of the hand. And so that's where we see throughout Scripture, the hand of God is synonymous with the power of God, the hand of God. And so the hand of God and the power of God are one and the same. And so in this way of thinking, the hand and action, the hand and power are coupled together. They are inseparable. And so on that great judgment day that is coming, when each one of us will take our turn and stand before the throne of Christ and he will be separating the sheep from the goats, the principal criteria that Jesus lays out by which the Lord is going to judge us is by how we have, in fact, used these hands in service to him by serving others. 
Let me show you. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus said, our call to worship, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so again, he's referring to reward, talking about the coming judgment day. And he's saying that something as small as giving a cup of cold water, motivated simply because he is a disciple or out of love for Christ, he will not lose his reward. He's saying small acts, giving cups of cold water, are noticed by the Father and will be rewarded. So even small acts of love, motivated by our love for Christ, will not lose its reward. So again, take another look at these hands of yours. What have these hands done? Yeah, they've done a lot of menial things, the things that we listed, and we could go on for hours listing all of the things that we do daily with our hands. But let's go deeper than that. Are these hands of mine active and willing to be used to serve the Lord by serving others, even in small ways? Or... On the flip side, are our hands too busy just serving ourselves? All right, they're they're our hands, they're my hands, These, these hands belong to me, so principally they should be used to serve me, right? Well, not according to the Lord. The Lord says, use these hands to serve others just as I have served you and set the example for you to follow. You see, this is so basic. All of you are saying, yeah, I I get this already, Danny. And yet, this is something so profound. I don't want you to miss it. Yes, it's basic, but it's foundational. It's fundamental. Because all of Christ's teaching comes back to this. And he even points to the fact that if we miss this, or if we say, yeah, I get that, but we're not actually doing it, there's going to be dire consequences. For if our hands are not willing for service we actually blunt the good work that the Lord would do through us. We blunt the work the Lord would do through us and ultimately deny ourselves his blessing today and his rewards in eternity. The only person that we are ultimately robbing by not using these hands to serve the Lord, well, two, in fact, we are robbing the Lord of the good that he would do through us, and we are robbing ourselves of the blessings and the rewards that God would give us for it. You'll recall that a few weeks ago, I I shared a story about a Stradivarius violin. And of course, the Stradivarius violin was made by the famous Antonio Stradivari, who lived from 1644 to 1737. And even today, in the year 2020, people both inside and outside of music are familiar with that name and the fame and, of course, the immense cost of Stradivari's violins. They recently have sold an auction for tens of millions of dollars, these priceless violins that he made. And way back in the early 1700s, Stradivari is reported to have said, When any master holds between chin and hand a violin of mine, he will be glad that Stradivari lived, lived and made violins, and made them of the best, God choosing me to help him. For if my hands slacked, I should rob God, since God would not make Antonio's violins without Antonio. God would not make Antonio's violins without Antonio. 
Now, to some, that may sound a little bit arrogant, but I don't believe that's the case. For I believe that Antonio understood that God had chosen to give him, and him alone, a specific skill to make violins. And he understood that if he were to waste that skill by not using it, he would be robbing God of the investment he had made in him to bless others and to bless the world with music. In much the same way, God has given each of us skills and opportunities to use our hands to serve him that are unique to you and to you alone. In other words, if you don't do it, no one else will because there are specific things that God has put your name on. Just as he put Antonio Stradivari's name on making violins of the very best, God has given you specific roles, specific tasks that are for you and you alone, and he won't do them for you. He has given you the skill to to step into that role, to do that task, but he won't do it for you. He will encourage you. He will prompt you. But just like he wouldn't make Antonio's violins without him, so he won't do your mission without you. It's a team. He wants to work together with you. To make it a little bit more clear for you, I want to read for you a very important verse from Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10 states this. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you see, God made us. We are God's workmanship. He made us, and he made us with plans prepared in advance, good works for us to do. And so his workmanship is us, and he has given us workmanship in a sense for our hands to set ourselves to. He's prepared it in advance, good deeds that we should do. And so if we enter into it, we will be giving to God and to the world and to ourselves the good and the blessings that God intends. But if we don't, if our hands should slack, we are robbing God, we are robbing the world, and we are robbing ourselves. Now, I want to be crystal clear here that when I say this, we're not talking about a workspace salvation. I want to be very clear on that. Salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. We don't work for this through our good deeds. We can't earn it. It's just impossible. However, I want you to be clear on that point, that once we are saved through grace, by faith alone, in Christ alone, a saved and a changed heart will result in good works. It just will. A saved and changed heart will result in good works. In other words, good works is the evidence of salvation. As Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. And in Matthew chapter 25, verse 45, Jesus concludes that section by saying that those who would be lost for eternity, condemned to judgment in the lake of fire forever, are the ones who did not give him a helping hand in his time of need, thereby proving that they were never his true disciples in the first place. You see, these false disciples, they maybe had lip service saying that, yeah, we're your followers, but they denied that reality through their actions. There was no true change of heart or life And the evidence was there was no good works, no good deeds whatsoever to show for it. 
And these false disciples will ask him on that judgment day, Lord, notice they call him Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now imagine for a moment that you're driving down a highway and there's been an accident and someone is lying seriously injured and bleeding in the ditch. There's no, there's no first responders on the scene. You are the very first person to happen upon this incident. Now, if by some chance you were looking the other way and you honestly did not see the accident or see the injured person lying there bleeding in the ditch and you kept on going, then you are not responsible. Either under the law or under God, your conscience is clear. If you were truly in ignorance that you did not see what had taken place. However... If you do see the accident and you do see the injured person lying bleeding there, but you just pretend that you didn't see them, and so you keep on driving, then under the law and under God and your own conscience, you are responsible for that person. And even if no one ever finds out, and no one ever finds out that you were the first person who could have given assistance at that scene but kept on driving, and you never get in trouble for it, If no one else finds out, you still know, and ultimately God knows, that you were the closest hand that should have offered help and didn't. Isn't this what we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan? The first two men that went by the man lying bleeding there on the side of the road, you know, they didn't go and announce the fact that they weren't helping this injured man. In fact, I'm sure when they got to wherever their important destination was that day, they didn't say, yeah, I left some guy bleeding on the side of the road back there. <laughs> Hope he's all right. Right? They're not going to advertise that. That's not something you're proud of when you leave someone wounded lying at the side of the road. They would have simply gone on with life pretending that they didn't see and no one would ever be the wiser. But the fact is, and the fact remains, that they did see, and God will hold them accountable. And too often, we think of God's judgment only being on the things that we have done. But the truth is, that God's judgment will also be for the things that we have left undone. The good that we should have done and did not do. James 4.17 says it quite clearly. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. The good that we leave undone is sin. So why should we be God's willing hands, helping to meet the needs of broken travelers along life's journey? Why? Is it because the people lying there, broken and bleeding in their sin, is it because they are deserving of it? No, they're not deserving of it any more than we're deserving of it. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, he didn't know whether the man in the ditch was deserving. He didn't know if he was a good man or a bad man or somewhere in between. Nor is it because people are always grateful when we give a helping hand. Sometimes people even resent it when we go out of our way to help someone. They say, hey, I didn't need help. I didn't ask for help. You know, the Samaritan didn't know whether the man in the ditch would be grateful or not. How about, uh, you know, some other fringe benefits we get from it? You know, if it's good social policy or because it's tax deductible 
or because it makes us feel good or look good in the eyes of others. No, those shouldn't be our primary reasons either. The reason why we should be God's willing hands is because when we serve others, Jesus says we are serving him. We are serving him. So when we give food to a hungry child through a child's sponsorship, it's like we're feeding him. When, when we work towards putting a well in a community in India or in Africa so that they can have clean drinking water, it's like we are giving Jesus clean drinking water. When we go out of our way to make quilts that are sent to people in disaster and war zones, it's like we're giving a blanket to Jesus. You know, when we stop to help a complete stranger on the side of the road change their tire, it's as though we're stopping and helping Jesus change his tire. And, and when you're at school and you see someone getting bullied and you stand out up for them and, and you say a good word for them, it's like you're standing up for Jesus. And so when, when you see someone begging for money on the side of the road and, and you give them a couple of spare dollars you have in your pocket, it's like you're giving a couple of dollars to him. And like so many of you did, when, when we fill those Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes. With, with thoughtful things and, and gifts of love, and you put some real effort and heart into it, remember, it's like you're giving that box to Jesus. That's how he receives it. And my friends, these opportunities are literally all around us. When we keep an eye open for them, they, they snowball. And, and sometimes you feel like, wow, the opportunities truly never end. And this is the example that Jesus gave us to follow. Not to be served, but to serve the Lord by sacrificially giving ourselves for the good of others. To be the hands of Jesus to those who so desperately need him. There's a story told that there was two women sitting in church after a service one day. And the one woman remained sitting there clearly in distress. And the other woman was sensitive to this and she stopped and sat down beside her silently. And finally, the distressed woman said to the other, I've always wished that God would touch me. But I suppose that's too much to ask. I just desperately need a touch from him. And the other woman replied, Well, you know what? That sounds like a reasonable desire. Have you ever prayed about it, asking him to do that? Well, no, of course not. God's not going to touch me. Well, why not? There's certainly nothing wrong with a prayer like that. Why don't we pray about it? All right, maybe I will sometime. Not sometime. Let's do it right now. What better place to pray than right here in the Lord's house? And so finally persuaded, the woman reluctantly folded her hands. She bowed her head. She closed her eyes in prayer. And in broken words simply asked that God would touch her. About ten seconds later, the other woman gently reached out her hand and laid it on top of the folded hands of the friend in prayer. And the, and the woman startled, almost like a shock had gone through her body, and her eyes opened in excitement, and she spontaneously shouted out, He did it! He touched me! But then after another moment, the old doubt and skepticism set back in and said, but that felt an awfully lot like your hands. Well, it was my hands, the friend replied. 
and disappointment began to register on the other's face. And here I thought God had touched me. To which the friend replied gently, He did touch you. How do you think God touches people? That he comes down like a fog blanket or a pillar of fire? You see, when God touches people, he takes the nearest willing hand and uses that. He takes the nearest willing hand and uses that. My friends, when we embrace this, Jesus' hands are multiplied. As many are in this congregation today, the hands are multiplied. And around the world, believers, followers in Jesus Christ, as we give our hands to others in service, just as Jesus did to his disciples, these hands are multiplied. So let me encourage you today. If through the course of this, the Lord has brought someone or some specific situation to mind, to your mind, to your heart right now, where you can be the hands of Jesus, just let me encourage you. As we said in the beginning, whatever it is, put a laser focus on it. Put a laser focus on it right now in your mind, in your heart, and act on it. Act on it. Don't leave it in the realm of intention without action. Jesus never intended his followers to only sit in church pews and piously reflect on his teachings or to polish our halos in seclusion from the rest of the world that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus wanted disciples who had dirt under their fingernails. I think that's why he called so many working class men. He wanted men who knew what hands-on action meant. And today he wants men and women, boys and girls, who aren't afraid to set aside their dignity and to, in humility, live out their faith in the everyday buzz and business and pain of life. And he wanted followers who weren't afraid to reach out a helping hand to that homeless guy, not afraid to extend hands of compassion to a hysterical widow, not afraid to reach out to that even untouchable leper with hands of healing. I hope you're beginning to get the picture this morning. This is the kind of followers that Jesus was looking for when he walked this earth. And it's still the kind of followers that he is looking for today. Those who are ready and willing to serve with our hands. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today we open our hands to you. And we lift them up and say, these hands are yours. Take them and use them, Lord to serve others with your love, to, in a very real sense, become your hands to people who desperately need a touch from you. Lord, however you would stir us to action today, I pray that we would follow through, that we would put that laser-like focus upon it and see what you will do as we obediently and willingly give our hands in service to you by serving others. Amen.